Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. I always ask, Father, that you would bless the time I spend in both my study and in teaching. Because, Father, we must be those who can handle your word, dividing it rightly, presenting it accurately, living according to what we learn. We may not just give lip service, Father, as the Pharisees were said to do. Praising you with their mouths, but not living according to what they say. And I pray, Father, we would not be that kind of people, that we would be those who give attention to your word, for we care deeply whether we please you by our actions. That we concern ourselves with what you've written, for we know it to be the truth and the life and the thing that will lead us into all righteousness, the lamp to our feet, Father, the counselor, to show us a better way. I pray, Lord, you would give us all of those benefits this morning as you teach us from your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, I still think it was pretty cool the way the Lord brought us to the beginning of chapter 15 last week, just as we came to Easter weekend. Wasn't that a nice fit? I wish I could say I planned it. But that beginning of chapter 15 gave us a very clear-eyed view of the gospel. If you remember, Paul told the church that the message that he received from the Lord was the same one he delivered to them, and that story of the gospel has never changed That being that Jesus died according to Scripture for our sins, he remained dead for three days and he was resurrected by the power of the Lord to prove his claims. That message was the one that the church in Corinth had heard. It was the one Paul says they had believed, if they hadn't believed in vain. And having believed, he says, it was the message that saved them. And that's what we said last week, that the gospel is the one and only message that has the power to save men's souls. Now, we see Paul beginning this chapter in that way, but we remember this is a chapter about resurrection. This was a chapter written to address errors in the way the Corinthian church was now thinking and acting when it concerns resurrection. So we might ask, why did Paul begin the chapter on resurrection with this overview of the gospel? And we answered last week by saying that the fact of the resurrection is at the heart of the gospel. The gospel is effectively a story of resurrection. And how that can be part of our life as well. If the resurrection isn't true, both for Jesus and for those who follow him, those of us who have believed in him, then the hope of our faith is gone altogether. Who cares about Jesus if he isn't a solution to death? If death is the end of me, then why do I care about Jesus' claims or his teaching? As Solomon said, let's just eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow I die. If I don't believe in Jesus' resurrection, then I don't believe in the gospel. That was what Paul started with last week. That's his concern. His concern is that the church in Corinth, having come to believe that resurrection is not actually true, is now in danger of rejecting, if they have never believed in the first place, the very gospel itself. That's why Paul asked them, have you believed in vain? In other words, have they not believed at all? So as Paul moves forward now into chapter 15, he's going to reestablish in teaching the truth of resurrection. And remember, I've said on numerous occasions, this is a letter of admonishment. Admonishment is the combination of teaching and correction. He's going to teach them on the truth and then correct them on their incorrect views. So he begins with the fact of Jesus's own resurrection. In other words, he starts at the top to reaffirm the reality of Jesus's physical resurrection from the dead. And he uses eyewitness testimony as his basis for this reaffirmation. Look with me in chapter 15, beginning in verses 3 through 7. 
He says in verse three, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. Let's pause there. I reread some of the verses we covered last week from our Easter message just to give you the context of Paul's testimony here. Because the resurrection is the key element in the gospel. Jesus lives again, we're told. That's the essence of the gospel. That was the message Paul delivered to the church. And that was the message he's repeating for them here now. Their Savior lives Jesus' death on the cross was not the end of him or of Christianity. If you know from the Gospels, some of the early reactions of the disciples following Jesus' death was one that suggests that they thought that this movement they were a part of had just come to its end. When your leader dies, it pretty much means the end of something, doesn't it? Well, the end of his physical body was not the end of Christianity. In fact, it was just the beginning of Christianity. And in his resurrection, now we see the proof of all of his claims. So Paul reminds the Corinthian church, this reality is at the center of the gospel. And then he says, this reality doesn't depend solely on my word. You don't know this is true simply because I told you it was true. No, you know it was true because a lot of other people would tell you that exactly the same thing. And he begins, interestingly, with Peter. With Peter, he says, was the first of all the men who came to see Jesus resurrected, Peter was the first to actually see it. I think he's referring to what Luke writes in Luke 24, 34, in which it said that Jesus appeared to Simon before anyone else. Why does he mention Peter separately from the other 12, do you think? The reason, I think, goes back to the beginning of this letter. Do you remember at the very outset of this letter, Paul was involved in stopping division in the church, and he was concerned about how those in the Corinthian church were aligning themselves to certain leaders? One of those leaders, you remember, was Cephas or Peter. It was, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, or I'm of Cephas in some cases. So for those in the church who aligned themselves with Peter, which was wrong to do in the first place, but nonetheless, for those who were willing to do that, and yet at the same time they were rejecting the idea of resurrection, well, Paul reminds them that your man Peter is one of those testifying concerning the resurrection too. And then Jesus appeared to the rest of the twelve, which we know from the gospel accounts happened on the very first night of his resurrection on that Sunday night after Jesus has come back to life. The 12 here then would refer to the 11 Jesus selected plus Matthias, plus Matthias, who was selected to replace Judas by the throwing of lots. That would also confirm, by the way, that Paul is not one of the 12. There's always this little debate, and I've run into this from time to time. Who was the true 12th apostle? Was it Matthias or was it Paul or some other names get thrown around? Usually it's Paul. But by this passage, we have clear proof that Paul does not consider himself one of the twelve. For he refers to the twelve separately from when he refers to himself. Also, we know Paul was not yet an apostle at the night of the first day of resurrection. He didn't become an apostle until years later. And yet there were twelve. And one of them was not Judas. So we know that Matthias was the God-appointed twelfth apostle, according to the requirements given in Acts chapter 1. And filled the spot of Judas, and then later Paul came along. And Paul, not being one of the twelve, he's the apostle to the Gentiles. That's his claim to fame, as you might say. In any event, we have Peter, who can stand and testify that Jesus was resurrected. We have the twelve who could stand and make that same testimony. 
Then in verse 6, Paul says, this church could turn to any of over 500 believers who could also testify that they saw a risen Lord. We have no other mention of this event in Scripture, by the way. We don't have anywhere in the Gospels or in the book of Acts where we hear of a group of 500 witnessing Christ in his resurrected body. But Paul mentions this appearance to the Corinthian church as if they already know of the event. That's the sense of it to me, is that he says it without having to prove it, which would suggest to me that this is something that's commonly understood in the church. And remember, this letter is only written maybe 23 years or so after the resurrection of Christ. This is one of the very first, if not the first, New Testament scripture written. So it would make sense that there would still be many in the church who knew of these stories and knew of this group of 500. And as Paul says himself, many of these 500 are still alive even in this day. And that would make sense. It's only been a couple of decades. So his point, of course, is that if anyone in the Corinthian church would doubt that Jesus actually was resurrected from the dead, they only had to go to one of these people or all of them and ask of their own testimony from their own eyewitness account. And they would hear exactly the same story. Beyond the 500, then we hear Jesus appeared to his half-brother, James, who became an apostle. And then it says, to the rest of the apostles. I want you to notice something there just in passing. Do you notice he separates the 12 from the rest of the apostles in verse 7? That's proof to us that there were more than 12 apostles. There were the 12, then there were other apostles. Paul himself being one, Apollos being another, James being another. There were more than just the twelve. It reminds us that no one can be considered an apostle unless they meet the tests that Scripture provide. And the test is you have to have seen the risen Lord. That's part of the test. And you see it reflected here. Those who were personally witnesses of Jesus's resurrected body and called by him personally to be an apostle can be an apostle. No one else can be because it is not something you appoint for yourself. Only the Lord personally appoints apostles. That's why we said earlier in this letter, there are no apostles today. That office died with John because it's not needed today. And by the way, anyone can call themselves an apostle. I can call myself a Girl Scout. It doesn't make me one, right? Talk is cheap. You want to prove you're an apostle? Do what only apostles can do. Raise people from the dead. Heal people with a word. Cause Spirit manifestations to occur, handle deadly snakes, be bitten and not die. The things that were said to happen only for the apostles are proof of your apostleship. For the Bible testifies that those men have come and gone because they've served a unique purpose to establish the church. But back to the point Paul's making. The early church, as you can see here, was established on the authority of eyewitness testimony Backed by spiritual power through apostolic gifting. That's how the church started. On that basis, the apostles and the other disciples of Jesus who could testify from this firsthand perspective were the ones who went out and said who he was and what he did. They preached about what he said. They demonstrated his fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. They reported what they had experienced when they saw him resurrected. That's it. That's how this movement got started. You might wonder, knowing that, why did anyone ever believe anything they said? How could something this powerful now in the world have gotten started by a bunch of nobodies running around in the first century claiming to have seen a man come back to life? But that's really what they had. Now, of course, we have the spirit of God 
working through all of that. We're not saying this is merely a work of men. But you might have expected, just in the normal course of human thinking, you might have expected people to rapidly dismiss these these crazy people, the rantings of this crazy sect of religious zealots. You might have just expected the world to dismiss all of this stuff. Simply saying 500 of us saw him wouldn't have been enough to convince anybody. Well, many people did come to that conclusion. There were an awful lot more people who said no to the gospel than who said yes. But not everyone. By the power of the Spirit, there were those who believed. And Jesus said that's exactly how this is going to work. In John's Gospel, John 15, 20, Jesus said, Remember the word that I said to you. A slave's not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. What he's saying is this. How did you come to believe, Peter? How did you come to believe, John? How is it, Matthew, that you believe I am the Christ? Because my word convicted and persuaded. How will they come to believe in your testimony? How will others come to know of me through you? Well, they will have to come the same way. You're not going to have some bag of tricks on top of what I had that's going to convince people. It is by God's word alone. So as you wonder about how the church was founded, merely on the testimony of a bunch of men, don't forget, that's how we still grow today. That's never changed. Nothing has changed in that regard. Jesus' followers take the very same message, that is, who Jesus is, and of what he has done, and then we preach that to the world by showing how he fulfilled Old Testament prophecy, and as we give eyewitness testimony to the resurrection. Whoa, whoa, wait. Eyewitness testimony, Steve? What about that last part? Yeah. We take eyewitness testimony to the world concerning Jesus' resurrection. Well, where do we get that eyewitness testimony? From the New Testament. Right? The New Testament writers are the apostles. The New Testament writers are the ones who recorded in the New Testament that eyewitness account, either in the Gospels, in the book of Acts, or in the letters even. And that New Testament scripture, authored for the sake of the church, is our present day witness to the world concerning who Christ is. When they say, how do you know he's God? I say, because the New Testament authors testify that they saw him resurrected. But who's going to accept that word? Jesus says the ones who have the potential to accept his word will accept our word in his stead as ambassadors of Christ. It's no more tricky than that. It doesn't require any more jazz than that. I don't need jumbotrons. I don't need some heart-rendering appeal. I don't have to cause you to tear up from some story of an orphan. Or I, I don't need props. This is the prop, right? And ironically, even if I could convey some ethos enough to create some kind of response, if it's not founded in the Word, then it's believing in vain. It's not real belief. It's just emotionalism. Paul's not showing them anything more than they already had from him, which is eyewitness testimony concerning who he was and what he did. We're in the same situation that the early church was in. We're bringing a message to a world that largely doesn't want it and will largely reject it, though some will receive it. It's faith in God's word. That's why Paul says elsewhere in Romans chapter 10, verse 17, he says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. I love the way he says that, too, by the way. He doesn't say faith comes by hearing the word of Christ. He doesn't say that, does he? He says faith comes from hearing and hearing. Your ability to hear, your ability to understand comes from the word of God. 
Today, the church grows on that same basis. And then finally, Paul reminds the church that he also saw the risen Lord. That's the next section. Verses 8 through 11, Paul says, And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, and not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. In a moment of great humility, Paul describes himself as the least of the apostles. And he says he was the least for two reasons. First, he was the last one to see the Lord. This is true, by the way. We, we don't have any record in Scripture that would suggest that the Lord appeared in his resurrected form to anyone after he appeared to Paul. Because remember, he appeared to Paul many years after he initially resurrected. Paul's experience, you probably know, comes as he was traveling on a road from Jerusalem to Damascus with letters to arrest believers in Damascus. The Lord arrested him uh, on the road and appeared to him, calling him to be an apostle. Now, that appearance is no less an appearance of Christ in resurrected form. We don't even really know what Paul saw, but we know he knew who he was talking to because he called him Lord. More than that, he knew because he became his disciple and he testified that he had seen him under those circumstances. In fact, I would say that Jesus' appearance to Paul may have been the most dramatic of any of them, given the way he chose to come. But even though Paul is confident that he is every bit as much an apostle as any of those other men, because his calling is just as legitimate, nevertheless, he acknowledges his apostleship came in a very different way. Paul says in verse 8, he was untimely born, which is a really interesting word in the Greek. In Greek, it literally means abnormally born. Abnormally, and in fact, that phrase is used in common Greek language to describe either premature birth, or it can also be used to to describe an abortion. That was the word in Greek for abortion. It's any non-natural, unexpected, unplanned, or abnormal birth. And in that respect, Paul means his commissioning as an apostle came in a very different way than the other 12. And that's easy enough to see, right? Paul wasn't appointed by the Lord in the early days of his ministry on earth like the other men were. He didn't spend three years walking with Christ, learning from him firsthand on earth, of course. And in fact, before he was an apostle, as he points out, he was in the business of killing Christians. So in those ways, Paul did not have that typical entry into apostleship, if there can be such a thing. But in light of how the others came, he was an abnormally born, so to speak, apostle. But he doesn't dwell on that, and I think that's a healthy balance here. He acknowledges what's true, but then he goes further and he says, you know, by the grace of God, I became what God wanted me to become, though. By God's unmerited favor and by nothing else, I became the apostle that founded your church. Paul's history of disobedience as a man who did not know the Lord, his history of ignorance, though he claimed to be a Pharisee, his history of hatred, though he claimed to love the Lord, none of those things stood in the way of God using him. God was willing in mercy to overlook that background, that past, and in mercy call him into faith, and then, Paul says, commissioning him to do great things. I don't think anybody would argue the point that Paul was the best the greatest, the most accomplished of any of the apostles. 
You might argue with that if you think James or John had some significance. I know they did. But, but in terms of New Testament canon, you really can't make any argument other than that Paul was the preeminent apostle. And Paul says, I labored to bring that result. God's mercy to Paul was mercy to all of us, too. God's mercy to Paul was mercy to us because when Paul was converted, the Lord gave us all hope. The more you reflect on what God could accomplish through a man like Paul, the more reason you have to serve God despite your background and your weaknesses. Do we have his testimony? No. You and I may not be the most talented that God's ever called into the faith. We may not be the most well-trained. We may have come to faith late in our lives, some of us, when it would seem like we didn't have much left to give. We may have simply waited a long time to live up to the faith we got as a child. We may be saddled with physical limitations, ailments, financial limitations, emotional baggage, maybe just self-doubt. We may have a past that is such shame to us that we don't really think we can be of any use to God. Whatever our situation is, our reputation went to the grave with Christ so that we can serve him in the newness of life. Paul says in Romans 6, 4, Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. That's how we've been saved. I think God called someone like Paul out of the circumstances Paul was in into what he made of him so that none of us could ever sit on our rear ends and say, you know what, I'm too far from the kind of person God wants to use. And it would take too much effort to get to the point where I could be useful to God. Well, you haven't had as much background as Paul, and I doubt any of us have worked as hard as he did. So where does that leave us? Our life before Christ, or even before we get serious about our faith, does not dictate our usefulness to God. Our talents and our strengths, or lack thereof, are not limitations to a God who gives us the power to serve Him as He calls us. In fact, He would rather us put our own abilities to the side along with our pride and let Him work through us. This is what Paul did, and he says he did it to make sure that the grace God gave him was not given in vain. His second use of that word so far in this chapter. Paul says, I made the most of the opportunity God gave me. I didn't waste the opportunity. Have you ever considered the grace that came to you and I and brought us to faith can be wasted? That's the implication of this, isn't it? That it could have been in vain. That Paul could have been saved under such dramatic circumstances, moved out of such a terrible way of life into something new, and then done nothing with it. And if he labored more than the rest of the apostles, he means, and accomplished so much more than the rest of the apostles, and I say that based on the, the reality of what we see in the New Testament, if we can fairly say that Paul rose to the top of that heap, it does suggest to me that at least for some of those men, they may not have used all of the opportunity God gave them. We don't have the book that tells us about the racking and stacking of the apostles. But Paul's statement suggests very clearly that we don't all make the most of what we've been given opportunity to do for him. Not even an apostle, maybe. And if that's true for those men, then it means we have something to be concerned with as well. We have been given a measure of time, energy, and resources. We can use them in a variety of ways. But there's only one way in which we can use them to the fullness of the grace that we were given. And that would be to serve him with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength while we still have that chance. The one who squanders the opportunity the Lord gives to serve him will one day discover what they left on the table. Let's imitate Paul's example in that regard. 
So Paul's opening argument in favor of resurrection is very simple. His opening argument is eyewitnesses. Men who can testify to the reality of Christ's risen body. This brings us to Paul's second argument. His second argument in favor of resurrection is an argument from logic. If the first was from testimony of eyewitnesses, the second is from logic. Look at verses 12 through 15. Paul says, Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, well, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then, well, our preaching is in vain. And your faith also in vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. Somewhere since the time Paul was in the church, people have come in after Paul and taught this church that, oh, that whole resurrection thing, that's just a big misunderstanding. No, 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 no. The body can't come back to life. Once you're dead, you're gone. That's the end of you. And so they had come to believe this for some reason. At least some of them did. And Paul begins to talk to them about this view. He says, your view on resurrection, church, is self-contradictory. It's illogical considering your Christian message. First, Paul asks the question, look, if the heart of the gospel message itself says that Jesus was resurrected, then how can you walk around testifying that there is no resurrection? If you hold that there's no such thing as a dead body coming back to life, then by necessity, you'd be saying Christ's dead body did not come back to life either, right? If you're saying it's not possible, then you're saying he didn't do it. And if he never got resurrected, then our gospel message is a worthless message. It's being preached in vain. In other words, it's empty. It amounts to nothing. So if Christ didn't raise from the dead, then our preaching is of a worthless message that's doing nothing for anyone. So how is it, church, that you're out in the world preaching a message which your own thinking, your own theology, says is worthless. Without realizing it, we can live in a contradictory way. We can hold to a point of view that at the same time is contradictory to the way we choose to live. Unbelievers, by the way, live this way all the time. They act as if there is no God, while even in subtle ways acknowledging that there is one. If you're living like there is no God, you better be right. If you want the freedom to live your life any way you want, sinfully or otherwise, you're stating by your behavior that you don't believe there's any judgment, there's no God, there's no consequence. Otherwise, why live that way? And yet people will hold two contradictory views. They'll believe in a God at some level, in some general way, and then they'll act like it doesn't matter how they live. They're doing something similar. The Corinthian church is preaching a worthless message based on their own view of resurrection and yet claiming that message is what saves them. That this is the message that they found valuable, that they made the object of their faith, and because of their faith in it, they intend to be saved and to be preserved from God's judgment. And yet their own thinking denies all of that. If you place your faith in something that is worthless, then the faith itself is worthless. If you place your faith in something that is worthless, then your faith is itself worthless. Many unbelievers go through life assuming that generic faith will save them. That if they happen to place their faith perhaps in the wrong thing, whatever that thing may be, or the wrong person, nevertheless, when it's all said and done, God will give them credit for the sincerity of their faith and overlook the fact that they picked the wrong object. 
How many times have you heard people say, I'm a person of faith? But do you know the word faith, just grammatically, means nothing without the object? You have to have an object in that sentence or the first part means nothing. There are people in the world, and it's very fashionable today, to walk around saying, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. Have you heard that one? I don't go to church, but I'm very spiritual, very spiritual. What in the world does that mean? Well, what do you mean you're spiritual? Well, I, I'm a person of faith. In what? Well, in God. Which God? What do you mean? What do you have faith in? How do you know that's true? If your faith is in something worthless, then your faith is worthless. What good was that belief? Well, it made me feel good. Oh, okay, so we get down to that. I mean, that's where it eventually lands. Their concern for the future, their fears for what their life might bring when they die, all of that is placated for a time by an emotionally-based response that says, at least I'm trying. For all the people who talk about faith in abstract terms, like I'm a person of faith, without actually ever defining the object of their faith, they've accomplished nothing. Saving faith is not blind faith, according to Scripture. And it does not rest on sincerity. You can be sincerely wrong. And most of us are about something, whether it's our sports teams or our, our investments or something, right? We can be certain and be wrong at the same time. That's the point Paul's making here when he shows them. You cannot simultaneously claim faith in a risen Lord while also claiming that there is no such thing as resurrection. The object of your faith doesn't exist under those circumstances. Christians, by definition, have faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we find our hope in that belief because Jesus has said, I will do for you what I have done for myself. And so our faith is in him by virtue of his word and the proof of his claims. To reject that he did what he said he was going to do is to reject him. And so Paul says in verse 15 that if the testimonies of resurrection are not true, then that means we are all liars. All of us, the 500, the 12, me, the rest of the apostles. These people have to be liars. If you say there's no such thing as resurrection, because we have universally testified to the truth of Jesus's risen body. So if we are liars, why do you care for anything we've said? Why does the church even exist? Why would they follow Paul, Apollos or Cephas at all? I mean, think about it. Imagine you're on a jury and you're hearing testimony from a witness in the witness stand and you learn that a key detail in that witness's testimony turns out to be an entire fabrication, a flat lie. How much concern would you have for anything else that person said? At that point, wouldn't you as a jury say dismiss everything that guy said? I can't believe a word of it because now I know he's a liar. Well, similarly, Paul's asking the church, why are you sitting here listening to what I had to say concerning yourself with whether you're a Paul or Apollos, while at the same time sort of brushing under the rug this thought that, oh, well, yeah, but they all lied about the resurrection. That that makes no sense. C.S. Lewis made a similar observation when he said that Jesus can't be just a good teacher. He cannot be just a prophet of God because he made claims to being God. Which, if he's only a teacher or if he's only a prophet, means he lied. And if he lied, there's no reason to take anything he said as good. In fact, by definition, he's no longer a good teacher, is he? 
By definition, he's no longer a prophet. He's either a liar or a lunatic, as C.S. Lewis put it. But if you say he was truthful and if you say he was not crazy, then you have to take his claims at face value, which leaves you with only one other choice. He's Lord. He is who he said he is. But you can't have it both ways. You cannot say he's Lord except he lied about the resurrection. That's the dilemma facing this church. They cannot reject resurrection as a concept and still embrace the gospel. So Paul concludes the logic with this simple point. He says, verses 18 and 19. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, well, we of all men are most to be pitied. It's easy to see how Paul finishes his line of argument here, isn't it? He says, look, if resurrection isn't true, then all of those past Christians who have come to faith and then died physically, what are we saying about them? We're saying they perish. And the word here in Greek, perish, is the word that literally means they cease to exist. They've come to their end. So Paul asks, they live once and then they're gone? And so then he says, if that's the truth of the gospel, he says, we have hoped in Christ in this life only. That means that the value of your Christian faith would not extend past the grave. It means that whatever good comes out of being a Christian, it's only for here and now in this life and then that's it. What good was that? When you think of all the things that are expected of a Christian walking with Christ, the self-sacrificial lifestyle, the denial of flesh, the persecutions that accompany a testimony of Jesus Christ. When you think about what it does for you in this life to be a follower of Christ, if it went no further, you and I should be pitied. We made a fool's bargain. That was a terrible deal. Everything got worse and no solution to death. What was the point? In other words, without the promise of resurrection, don't be a Christian. There's no value in it. There's no purpose in it. The gospel we have is a gospel that declares that death is not the end of us and that as a result, we can live through a life that may not bring us all we wish because God, as the judge of all people and of all things, will create for us the just outcome we expect. But it won't happen this side of heaven. It comes in our resurrected life, living on this earth, serving him in a glorified body when we will see our inheritance. That's the message of the gospel, and it hinges on resurrection. Jesus addressed this same challenge at one point in his ministry. The Sadducees challenged him because these men did not believe in resurrection. That was their view theologically as Jews. They didn't believe in resurrection. And the Sadducees came up to Jesus trying to trick him. And they asked about that example of a woman who's married to seven different husbands. The first husband dies, then she marries again, then she marries after that one dies, all the way through seven husbands. you remember this one? And the trick was this. He would be forced to have to answer how that would all get worked out in heaven if there was resurrection. If all of these bodies are going to come back to life, what happens? Who's she married to? Well, Jesus addressed that at first, saying, well, you don't understand. You're not married in heaven. You're like the angels. But then to prove to you that it's always been in the Bible, he does this in Luke 20, 37. He says, but that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the burning bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living for all live to him. Here's his point, And it's subtle. When he says God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, he's referring to a covenant. The one that was made with those three men. 
That covenant made promises to those men. Among the promises it made, you would have land within Canaan as your inheritance, stretching from the Mediterranean Sea to the Euphrates, from the border of Damascus down to the brook of Egypt. A huge span of land. They would own all of that. They would dwell there peacefully. They would have their inheritance there with them, their family there with them, and they would live there in peace. This was what they were told. None of them saw that. None of them. And that's Jesus' point. Remember Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the covenant? How much of what they were promised did they get? Zip. They got a few descendants, but they didn't get the fullness of the promise. So you're left to conclude one of two things. God is a liar, and you can't trust his promises. Or, these men have to come back to life and live again on this physical earth, in a physical body, in order for God to keep these promises. And that's Jesus' point. He says, remember, this was said to men who are dead, and God is not the God of the dead, He is the God of the living. They will be back. Resurrection is central to our understanding of our faith. When we come back to this study, we will now go deeper into his correction concerning resurrection. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you, Father, that you gave us this opening opportunity to understand the centrality of resurrection. For many of us, Father, this issue was settled, and thankfully you have shown us the truth of it long ago. And so we understand Paul's point, we agree with it, and we see the sense of it. But, Father, there are so many around us, perhaps even some who call themselves Christian, for whom this point is not a point they agree with at all. That the concept of death feels like the end. And we know, Father, it doesn't have to be that way. So I pray that what we've learned, though it may not be news for us, would become urgency so that we might go out and speak to the fact that death is not the end. That for those we may know who suffer a fear and concern themselves with an emptiness that death implies, that they would have an answer from us that it is not the the end that they expect and that there is hope. We pray, Lord, that you give us that opportunity. Continue, Father, to let us reach those in Austin who need this message. Bring some of them to join us so that we may minister to them here. But don't let us depend on that, Father. Give us a heart to reach them wherever they are so that we may be ambassadors in the days that remain. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.